Some of you are familiar with uh, the writings of Wendell Berry. He's one of the most eloquent um, advocates for the new agrarianism that is having an influence in America. Um, he writes essays, he writes poetry, he writes novels. His, the novel that he thinks is the best of all the novels he's written, does anybody know? Jaber Crow, that's right. He's an excellent novelist. Uh, I recommend his books to you. Jaber Crow is, he thinks, the best writing he's ever done. He says this in several interviews. I love Jaber Crow. Our fellows read it as a novel. Um, it's, it's beautiful. It opens our eyes to some of the deep fractures in Western modern society. But it starts in the most curious of ways. And if I ever get a chance to ask uh, Mr. Barry, I, I don't ex anticipate that I will, but if I ever got a chance, I would ask him, why did he start it with the epigraph um, that he started it with? He, and I wish I had it memorized. He says something like, beware any reader who tries to find a meaning in this novel. Just read the thing. Don't sit around talking about what it means. It's a story. I'm really con con curious about it because of all the novelists I read, he writes with the he most heavy hand reflecting an agenda. I mean, at times he gets downright preachy and so about new agrarianism. So it's, I, don't, I don't know if he's saying it tongue-in-cheek. Um, I don't know what he's doing. And, and I often laugh at this when I get together with people to discuss the meaning of the novel. Um, a novel that begins with the author saying, don't get together and discuss the meaning of it. It's just a story. John, the author of John's gospel, is exactly the opposite. He has an agenda, and he tells you he has an agenda, and he tells you he wants you to search for the meaning. That, that the purpose of the narrative is to persuade. So, for example, go to the beginning of John's gospel. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 11. This is right after the first time Jesus performs a miracle in John's gospel. Jesus, uh, John the writer says in chapter 2 verse 11, this, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. It's interesting that in John's gospel, he doesn't use the word miracle to describe the miracles of Jesus. He always uses the word sign. Now, why does he use the word sign instead of the word miracle? Because John, the author, wants you to see these supernatural acts as signs. In other words, they're pointing at something. And when there's a sign pointing at something, the precisely wrong thing to do is to stare at the sign. Right? You're going to cross the road and somebody yells out, A truck! The worst thing to do is to keep walking and staring at the person whose finger is pointing, right? What are you supposed to do? Look at the truck and stop. So what does it mean to call a miracle a sign? It means that it's pointing at something and your job as the reader is to follow the arrow, the thing. Don't stare at the miracle, but what is it pointing at? What is it revealing? So this is the first of the signs. And then in a little bit, he'll say, this is the second of the signs. And then he stops saying it all together because he, the author, wants you to work. And so he has actually seven miracles. Seven's an important number in the Bible. Seven moments in John, Jesus does something supernatural. Now go to the end of John's gospel. Look at chapter 20 if you have a Bible. If not, just listen. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs, miracles, supernatural things that point in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So Jesus did a ton of miracles. You can read the other Gospels and see other miracles he did. But John picked out a few. Now, why did John only pick a few? Why didn't he write this exhaustive biography of everything that Jesus said and did? Well, look what he says. But these are written. I picked the ones I did. So that 
I could write an exhaustive biography of Jesus. No. His agenda is not an exhaustive account of the life of Jesus. What's his agenda? So that you, the reader, may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. And that by believing, you may have life in its name. So John has picked out certain miracles that he thinks most effectively point to the fact that the person Israel's been looking for, the Messiah, is Jesus. And they point to it in the kind of way that if you would follow the trajectory of the, of the sign, you will discover that the Messiah, I'll come back to that in a minute, is Jesus. And if you will make that surprising discovery, and if you will believe that, you'll have life. Now, again, just like with this whole notion of signs, in John's gospel, life, that word, most famous scripture in all of the Bible, for God's love the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life, everlasting life. John's gospel is written like a great mystery novel. A really deep and thick novel. The, the nearest example I know of are the novels of Dorothy Dunnett, the master of historical fiction. Nobody writes historical fiction anywhere in the league of Dorothy Dunnett. But it takes multiple readings of Dorothy Dunnett to figure out all of the depth, all of the layers of meaning. You read it through one time and you get the big shape of it. You read it through again and you see that there were clues all along the way to solve the mysteries. Every novel ends with the unknotting of a mystery. And all the, she wrote two series. Each series has a mega mystery. But it requires multiple meaning, readings to see that, you know, the trick with really bad mystery writing is that the author denies you information that if you had had it, you could have seen it. So it's, it's kind of a, um, an immature way of writing a mystery. But a mature way of writing a mystery is that you have all the information. You just can't put it together because you can't see the way it fits together. Great writing gives it to you all along. And then you come back later and you're like, oh, it was there all along. Like getting to the end of a relationship with somebody and realizing that all along the hints were there. And if you could have just seen it at the beginning, you would have related to them differently. That's how John's gospel is. It doesn't reveal its treasures on the first reading or the second reading, but the 20th reading and the 30th reading. And, and what it does is it takes words that by the time you get to the end of the gospel, it's filled them out with rich, thick meaning, and then you go back and read it again, and you see it was there all along. And this word life is one of those. Life is a rich, thick thing in John's gospel. Life, when it says at the end that believing this about Jesus, by, by following the sign of the miracles, and seeing that the miracles reveal to us that the Messiah is Jesus. By doing that, if you would believe that, you'll get life. By the time you get to the end of John's gospel, you know that when he says life, he's talking about rich life, fullness of life, a life with intense meaning and deep satisfaction, a life of gravity and substance and weight and significance. John is saying, I'm writing this whole thing with an agenda. My agenda is to point at Jesus for you to see him in a particular way and to trust that about him. And if you do, that will produce in you everything your deepest desires have ever longed for. Israel's deepest desire was for the Messiah to come. And deliver them from all of their enemies. And the gospel of John, he's saying to the reader the same thing. Your deepest hungers 
The key to getting them fulfilled is to believe something particular about Jesus. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus from the dead, is the seventh sign in John's gospel. It's the climactic sign. It's the one that most closely shows us who Jesus is. Now, my goal this morning is to have the same heavy agenda that John has in writing his gospel. So, John puts all, he's not like Wendell Berry. He doesn't try to hide his cards. He owns up to them. He, he shows him, it's the opposite of playing close to the vest. From the beginning, John says, hey, here's what I'm up to. Here's what I'm about. Here's what I'm doing. I want to say to you this morning, I have an agenda. This isn't a discussion. I'm going to try to persuade you of something. I'm trying to do something this morning. And my goal this morning is to point at Jesus in such a way that all of us can discover that if we believe something particular about him, that is the path to having the deepest hungers of our hearts satisfied. Now, what I want to do is walk through this remarkable account, this highly dramatic situation where Jesus' close friend dies and Jesus raises him from the dead and then eventually it ends with premonitions of Jesus' own death. And I want to just take a few of the characters and show you how these characters and their experience with Jesus are signs they point us to this reality about Jesus. Let's start with Lazarus himself. This repeated emphasis at the beginning that Jesus loves Lazarus. Look at verse 3. So the sisters sent someone to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, John chapter 11, verse 4, this illness, he said this illness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God. So the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So why is it saying that again? It's rather redundant. I mean, you're not that forgetful of a reader. Only two seconds prior in your reading was it the claim made that Jesus loved him. In a biography of 20 pages... Now compare that to all of the great biographies you know. Is there a biography that's won a Pulitzer Prize for the life of Abraham Lincoln that's 20 pages long? Not even close. I just finished reading a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Cornelius Vanderbilt. 700 plus pages. That's what it took to get a Pulitzer But here we've got a biography that's only 20 pages. Now look, if you're trying to tell the life of a deeply influential person, 20 pages. So what you can do is you can can know there's no mistake. There's no redundancy. There's no accident. This is good literature. So why the redundant comment of Jesus' love for Lazarus? Well, on one level, The reason we find in verse 5 the reiteration of Jesus' love is to assure us that verse 6, once he heard his good friend was ill, he stayed two days. It's to assure us that the delay in going to his sick friend is not a matter of indifference. It's to produce what's called in literature a gap. A gap is where there's something missing and you, the reader, are supposed to say, why is that missing? What's going on here? It sets up a paradox that you, the reader, are supposed to scratch your head, stroke your long, lovely hair. Some of you can do that. And say, why did he stay? Right? I mean, think about it. Indy finds out that someone he deeply loves, that Indy's got the power to help is very sick, so Indy doesn't go to him. 
right? That's an irony. That's a paradox. And many of you felt that when you read it. You're like, why did he stay? The writer wants you to do that. So the first reason we're told that Jesus loves Lazarus so many times is so that we don't accept the answer of indifference. That's not the reason he stayed. That's the wrong answer. So the author cuts off that thing and he wants you to go in a different direction. That's one. But there's a second level of meaning to this whole emphasis on Jesus' love for Lazarus. This word. This, this person whom Jesus loved. Look down at verse 11. Our friend Lazarus. It could be translated, our beloved Lazarus. It's the same word that comes up in another one of John's writings, the guy who wrote this gospel. He also wrote three letters called 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And in 3 John, it's only one chapter, very last verse, verse 15, John refers to all Christians as beloved. So a deeper level of meaning behind this emphasis on this deep love that Jesus has for Lazarus is that he has the same deep love for all Christians. You, by the time you get to the end of all of John's writings, are supposed to let this word love that Jesus has for Lazarus, this word beloved, if any of you know Greek, you know there's multiple words for love. This is the one phileo. It's a very particular word, and he uses the same word for Lazarus that he uses for you and me. John the author wants you on the 20th reading, the 25th reading, to see that you are Lazarus, that he loves you. He really, really does. Part of what this whole account is pointing to is the fact that God actually loves Grayson. Not the idea of Grayson, not humanity in general, but Susanna in particular. Let's go to Martha. Good old Martha. Any of you who've read the Bible might know of another story of Mary and Martha. Martha's a busy little bee. Look at the way she refers to Jesus in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Um, it's probably, on the surface level, it mostly means basically sir. It's a term of respect. Some cultures still use this way of respect with leaders today. Look at verse 27 how she responds to him. Yes, Lord. Yes, sir. Yes, one I respect. I believe that you are the Christ, which Christ, it means the Messiah, the one that Israel's been waiting for to deliver us. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Son of God. Here, Martha, she really is impressed with Jesus. She addresses him in these special ways with these lofty titles. She does, she does not think that Jesus is normal. She, she thinks he's something special. Number two, look what she says in verse 21. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, here we see that Martha thinks that Jesus has special intermediary powers with God. If anybody could have gotten God to fix this situation, I know you could, Jesus, because I've seen you do it before. I've seen you intercede, be an intermediary, intermediary for other people in tight spots. 
Now, this is what Martha believes about Jesus. These two things. She believes Jesus is special and his specialness falls within the category that God listens to him uniquely. But that's as far as it goes with Martha. She doesn't believe about him what Christians today believe about him. She has a belief, but it's not quite there yet. It's inadequate. That's why Jesus pushes on her and he says, Jesus says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, her belief falls short of the belief that he is life itself. That he has the power of life itself. The reason he can do such great things is because of what lies within him. That he is the source of light and life. See, on the front of our worship guides, that's what Ed Nippers is getting at in this painting. When you look at this painting, what is the source of light in the painting? It's coming right out of the abdomen of Jesus. He's the source of light. And notice what else? Notice in front of him, Lazarus, with the, with the rag around his eyes and his hand right next to a skull. Lazarus, rising from the dead. What is Nipper saying here? He's saying light and life are sourced in Jesus Christ. That is what Martha hasn't yet gotten to. This idea that Jesus himself is throbbing with life and light, and he conquers death in himself. So Jesus tells her in verse 25, I, Martha, am the resurrection. I am life, the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now he's saying to her in a hard way for her to grasp at the moment, Lazarus died, but through me, Lazarus physically died, but through me, he will physically live. And then in the next sentence, he amps it up even further. Look what he says in verse 26. And everyone who lives, everyone who through me really lives, shall never die. And here he's using that word death again to say, look, I am the source of conquering your greatest enemy. Death. That's me. Martha, do you believe this? Now notice her response is not, yes, I believe that. Her response is, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, which for her doesn't mean that. All of her hopes were for this Messiah figure to deliver them as a nation from their enemies. But she didn't yet know how deep deliverance went. However, not to totally throw Martha under the bus, I think that what John is doing here is saying, if you see yourself in Martha... If you, like Martha, can wrap your mind around Jesus being exemplary, better than the average bear, that's a good enough place to start. He'll take that. See, look, faith is hard. 500 years ago, it was nearly impossible not to believe in Jesus, that he was who Christians say he is here in the West. But today, it's nearly impossible to believe. Faith is hard. Flannery O'Connor says there are those of us who pay for our faith every step of the way. It's difficult. Very few people living in the Western world with a Western Enlightenment education have no doubts. Very few people do. Here, Jesus is saying, John is saying in his writing of, about Jesus... I will take whatever I can get. That's a good place to start. 
If you can see Jesus as exemplary, let's start there. But here's the interesting thing. What John is doing is saying, start there and take one step beyond that. What is the step beyond that? It is this. Speak to Jesus about the seeming, the seemingly impossible situations in your life and just see what he will do with them. Come to Jesus with some half-expressed hope, right? Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. Look, back in verse 3. So the sisters sent him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Is Ill. It's sort of like um, southern passive-aggressive speech. Can any of you imagine someone saying to you, are you going to um, deal with your dishes after dinner? Right? Kind of a passive-aggressive way of saying, would you wash your dishes? If not, I will judge you morally and think you're a bad person. But it's far easier to just say, what are you going to do with those dishes? <laughs> this is the same thing that happened in actually the very first miracle Jesus did, right? Back in chapter 2. Do you remember when Mary, some of you were here when we went through this, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes to Jesus in chapter 2, verse 3, at the party, and said to him, they have no wine. She doesn't ask him to do anything about it. She just says it to him. But he was raised by this woman. He knows he knows, honey, are you thirsty? Really means I would like you to get up and get me something to drink because I'm thirsty. And if you're thirsty, you can get yourself something to drink too. <laughs> what, is, what, are, what are Mary and Martha doing when they send to Jesus this message, Lord, he whom you love is ill? What they're doing is they're half expressing a hope that despite the seeming impossibility of the situation, he will do something about it. So what I'm saying to you is follow this sign. If you can just imagine that Jesus is exemplary, that he is something special, take it just one step further. Call out to him and name your impossible situation and see if he will do something about it. Now, the, the next thing we do, I think, we should look at Mary. Mary here, not the mother of Jesus. Mary, the sister of Martha and sister of Lazarus. Two things strike me about Mary, about the way she points. First, look at verse 34. Right, this is when... Um, Mary finally comes out to talk to Jesus. And remember what it says, she fell at his feet. It says she's weeping. That's an American translation. Um, it, really, she's wailing. But Americans don't weep, don't wail at funerals. Um, other cultures do. Um, in this culture, they wailed. Uh, one of my friends was Ethiopian. And when his son was killed, killed and I went, his very young son, I went to the funeral there were these um, seven women on the front row in complete black garb shrieking throughout the funeral, wailing. That's what's going on here. So she's wailing, she's and it says Jesus is deeply moved and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. When was the last time in John's gospel, those of you who have been with us going through John's gospel, and um, the words come and see were used. Does anybody remember? It's back in chapter 1 where some people come up to Jesus and ask Jesus a question. And Jesus says to those people, come and see. Here's what I think Mary points us to. She says to Jesus, come and see this Thing. Come and see this grave, this abode of darkness and death, this manifestation of grief. 
and evil. Of Satan's dark kingdom. I think that in reading John's gospel multiple times, you're supposed to compare Mary's come and see death to Jesus' come and see life. Come and see the source of life and light. Now, what can we learn from this? I think it's similar to Martha. How can a person in our secular society for whom doubt plagues us, how can those of us who pay for our faith every step of the way, how can skeptical people discover that Jesus is the source of light in life? Put it on the line. Pray as if he exists and invite him to the darkness in your life, the death in your life, the manifestations of brokenness in your life. Ask him if you exist, if you are. Come and see what I'm living in. Come and see This terrible stuff that I face. And then be prepared for a surprising response. I don't know how he's going to answer it. Because one thing I really get from reading John's gospel is that in all of creation, the wildest thing by far is Jesus. He will surprise you. He will surprise you over and over. Our church is going through issues right now where God is surprising us. My life, I can tell you about a number of things that I had planned for that it didn't land that way. And then only discover that Jesus was in it, that God was in it, that life and light was in it. What I'm saying to you is that cry out to him and And offer him the struggle and the pain and the darkness. And then get ready for a surprise. And I don't know exactly what it will look like. But the shape of it. The shape of it will be that Jesus will meet your darkness. With life. Because he is life. He is the source of light and life. So what happens when you put a candle in a dark room? It brings light. What happens when you light a fire on a cold day? It brings heat. It brings life. So when Jesus shows up, because he is more than an example, he doesn't just show up as a pattern. He shows up as a warm, glowing source of light and life. And the particular way it will play out in your darkness, I can't predict. But the logic, the substructure, the shape of it will be life and light. A second thing, a second way I think that Mary points us Is this incredible scene at the end where she's washing Jesus' feet with her hair and in a vial of perfume that cost a year's wages for the average income. The word Bethany, they live in a city, a community really, a little town that's named Bethany. Bethany means house. Any time you read in Israel about a city that starts with the word Beth, the word Beth means house. Ani means agony, infirmity. Some people think that this is a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem where permanently disabled people live. It's the house of infirmity. Some of you are reading through Jean Vanier's um, uh, commentary on this book. Vanier, who has spent his life 
with inventing and starting and leading an organization called L'Arche. They live, he lives with profoundly disabled people and feeds them and changes their diaper and cares for them. He's a world-class philosopher, left a full professorship and fame and fortune to move to France to start an organization where he lives with profoundly disabled people. He says when he reads this chapter, he imagines that Lazarus was some sort of invalid. And that that's why a man is living with two sisters. And that's why in a hyper-patriarchal culture, the two sisters are always named first. When you never do that. That these two sisters have given up their life to care for this invalid. So here's Jesus. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Here's Jesus. And they're having a party for him in Bethany, this house, this community of infirmities. And in the midst of profound brokenness, Mary wastes thousands of dollars. I mean, it's one thing to do this in a palace, but to do this in the slums. So Judas reacts, right? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus, you're always going on and on about the poor. We could have used this for the poor. And Jesus says what? Look over at chapter 12, verse 8. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Really weird statement. How does that justify wasting money? It only justifies it if Jesus thinks that his upcoming death will somehow be the solution, the source of light and life. Mary, you see, she learned this. She figured it out. Look look at verse 53 of chapter 11. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. I'll get into this more in just a moment, but Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and that precipitated his death. His enemy said enough. Mary gets it. And so Mary realized that Jesus traded his life for Lazarus. And in response, she does this incredible thing. She responds to his self-giving love by giving her all in this beautiful, intimate act, this foolish and scandalous act. Now, I want to say to you, I want to reveal my cards. That's where the path ends. Look, if you're here and all you can do is imagine that he's exemplary and you can take one more step and you can call out to him as if he can still hear you and you can invite him to come and see. I am saying that the end point of this journey is for you not give a one iota that you look like a fool. Because of your loyalty to Christ. And we look foolish. The mental framework of America today says we are nincompoops. How can any rational, educated person, this side of the scientific um, revolutions that have given us so many good things, how can we not trade in our supernatural beliefs for belief in science, hard, cold, fact? How can we still live with a belief that this person, Jesus, was more than exemplary, that he was actually the source of light and life himself, and if we put our faith and belief in him, we too can draw down on that, and we will... Through him conquer death. To believe that. I mean, just imagine saying that in a a public assembly at JMU today. Or any other place. Imagine Matt standing up to a judge and at one moment in a trial saying, No, because Jesus rose from the dead, I too will rise from the dead. Can you? I mean, we are idiots. We're just 
We're backwoods, uneducated, fundamentalist. We rank up there with fundamentalist Islam in the framework of society today. And what I'm saying to you, look, look at it this way. There was a saying by one, a woman had seven sons. We, this is in some historical accounts dating back to the, the early centuries, uh, the first, second, third century. There's this woman, Jewish woman, seven of her, her sons became Jewish high priests. She's famously asked, what's the secret? And she says, the secret is the rafters of my house have never seen one hair of my head. In a Jewish culture, revealing your hair was totally immodest. And those of you who have been around the Mennonite culture, you can get that, some sense of that today. When Mary undid her hair and used her hair to wipe Jesus' feet, everybody in the room sucked in their breath. It was a scandalous thing to do. And Mary couldn't think of anything more appropriate than pouring out her love even though it ruined her reputation for the rest of her life. And what I'm saying is, that's the end of the journey. When we look at Mary, is to come to the place to draw strength that in our own day, high school students, junior high students, to love Jesus so much. Adults, that you just own how foolish you look. How dumb you look. And that this is the most appropriate response to realizing Jesus gave his life for yours. Now, with that, I want to shift to look at Jesus. How do we, looking at Jesus here, how does it help point the way to who Jesus really is? Well, look back at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Now, he loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard it, he stayed two days. Why does he wait two days? What, what is going on here? I mean, when you go down and you see in verse 34, where have they laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wailed. He wept. Why then did he wait two days? What, what are we seeing here? And then... Later on it says, verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Do you know where else in John's gospel this word for scream out with a loud voice is used? Does anybody, by the way, know? The crowds. That's exactly right. The next time we find these words used, crying out with a loud voice, it's when all the crowds cry out with a loud voice, kill Jesus. In chapters 19 and 20. Why, if Jesus is so in, loves so much Lazarus that it moves him to such deep emotions, what, what does all of these kind of riddles within riddles, how does this point? A couple of ways. Number one, it shows us that the wrong way to interpret Jesus' crying is to say, see, he's a fully human person. That's what a lot of people do with this. They say, look, he cried, so he was like us. No, that's not what John is saying. What John is saying is, look, God cried. Not God is like us, but that all of your compassion, that's you in the image of God. Your grief over death, that's you in the image of God. Your deep emotional response to injustice, that is a whiff of what God is like. We are seeing here what the Creator is like. The Creator is life and resurrection. So wouldn't He hate death? Wouldn't He hate darkness? So when you see Jesus weeping, don't think sentimentally, oh, he's like me and he can relate to me. No, think this is what God is like. Think in other words that he loves you that much. 
that he is deeply grieved over the, the manifestations of death in your life. Remember earlier I said we should read into Lazarus all of us? Lazarus all of us? So can you imagine Jesus standing near you and seeing all of the brokenness that has ravaged your life and all of the ways in which you ravage other people's lives and he cries over it? That is what it is pointing to. That is what God is like. Now, this is hard for us to believe, but this is what John wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that the center of reality is not power, but love. It is not cosmic love. It is love for you. This is hard for us to believe. John wants you to actually believe that in all of the struggles of the cosmos... All of the things that if there is a God, he needs to be concerned about. Somehow, within that love, he zooms it in on you. He wants you to believe that. That's his agenda. Another thing he wants you to believe is that there are plenty of cries in this world for death. There are plenty of shouts, like the crowd did, for death. But there is one shout of life in this world. And it is the creator who is the source of light in life. And he wants you to believe that of all the death-dealing energy in our world, in the midst of all of that, there is one cry and shout and energy for life. And it's Christ. And when you tap into him, you'll discover that. His shout... Raise Lazarus from the dead. And his shout will conquer death for you. Just like Lazarus, you're going to die. And John wants you to believe that on the other side of that death will be your resurrection if you can see Jesus in this way. A third thing that we see when we follow the arrow of Jesus' pointing, we see that somehow Jesus' ability to raise you from death is rooted in his own death. That the two are related. How? Well, good news, we're heading into Holy Week. We get to talk about and try to figure that out, that deep kind of connection. The very difficult thing to see is that Jesus gives life only by giving his death. That the raising of Lazarus leads directly to the death of Jesus. It is at the cost of Jesus's life that Jesus gives life. Now it says people respond to this in different ways. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them didn't. Okay, so let's end here. If all of this pointing led some people to follow the arc of the point, to believe in Jesus that this is true about him, but, it caught, but other people saw it, they saw him raised Lazarus from the dead, they just didn't believe. Why? Why didn't they believe? Lots of different reasons. Look, look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Israel was captured by Rome and the last thing Rome tolerated was some dude getting a lot of followers and Israel believing that that's the solution to their problems. Rome doesn't go for that. So there's some people that just to be quite honest, they're afraid to believe this about Jesus because they're afraid it's going to lead to an uprising and Rome will quash it. Some people, I think, hearing everything I said, if they, if they, one of the reasons that we reject this is we're afraid of the effects of buying into all of this. That there will be situations in our life that get very difficult if we step on the Christian path. There are people that don't. They reject Jesus because they're afraid of losing control. 
They're afraid of trusting and surrendering to somebody else because we've all been raised to be autonomous agents. And here, Christianity is saying the source of light in life is not inside of you. It's outside of you. And you've got to turn your back on the basic story of the Enlightenment, which is that you, you, ultimately inside of you, that's where the truth is. That's where salvation is. And and what I've been saying is that no, life and light is not sourced in you. It's sourced in Jesus. So if you want it, you've got to surrender to him and turn your life to him and trust him. Some people, I think, reject Jesus because they're jealous. And, And I think with a lot of us, it's a mixture of all these things, all of these reasons that find a home in the dark areas of our own heart. We can refuse to look at Jesus and listen and humbly turn ourselves to him. Go back to John chapter 20, verse 31. I wrote these things, John says. So that you will believe. That the Christ, the son of God, is Jesus. Now, most of your Bibles translate that different. Most of your Bibles translate it that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, That's not entirely accurate. The grammar is very clear here. The grammar is the reverse of that. The grammar is that you will believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus. In other words, he's saying to Israel, everything you've been looking for, you need to believe that's Jesus. It's not that you start with Jesus and you try to figure out who he is. It's that start with the hungers of your heart. And discover that the end of them is Christ. John is showing us that Jesus is the source of light and life. And the way to tap into Jesus is to believe these things about him. Nine times. In the story of Lazarus, the word believe is used. This is hard for us. Because we've been raised with the ironclad assumption that knowing is the solution. And that facts and knowledge are solid and belief is squishy. And John is saying, the way to tap into life and light is to believe that Jesus is the source of light and life and to believe that his death secures it for you. And look at what Thomas says in chapter 11. Good old Thomas. He says, Let us go with Jesus that we may die with him too. He was wrong. They didn't get killed. Not at least when Jesus did. But to come to the place in your life and for me in my life that we say, death with Jesus is the only way to life. And life without Jesus is death. Let's pray.